0: Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. There is far more to coaching than barking out commands and the occasional motivational speech. There is an entire language embedded in the practice, and to become proficient in guiding your athletes towards excellence, you must become fluent in that language. Nick Winkleman joins us this week to discuss his book, The Language of Coaching, and break down the most effective way to impact performance. Communication is key not only for achieving the end result, but also for making yourself indispensable to your stakeholders. Nick has built a career of doing just that and is here to give coaches new and seasoned his greatest tips to succeed. Here it is, episode 369.
1: Power, athlete, Nishan, that's the French version of Nation, Nishan? No, no, it's not. Nishan. No, it's not. Oui, oui, Nishan. It's not. So we talk about the Frenchman in this episode, but John, do you know, I think you didn't put it, you didn't DM it to us because I tried to look it up. You put, had to post on your yeah, story about the World it, War II vet yeah, who the World was War at II. customs.
2: Yeah, he went <laughs> back for the uh, D-Day, uh, like, you know, the anniversary of D-Day and he got there and they, you know, the guy asked him like, um, you know, hey, for your papers. And the, the old guy was kind of slow and the guy was pretty rude to him. And he goes, well, he goes, you know, yeah,
1: have you been here before? Yeah, and, yeah I and, and he goes,
2: yeah, he goes, yeah, have you ever been here? He goes, yeah, obviously, you've been He goes, yeah, I've been here before. He goes, and you didn't show papers? And the guy's like, no, when I landed here on D-Day, I couldn't find a single Frenchman <laughs> to show my papers, too.
1: Man, just like, what a, what a jab on the French. What a jab.
3: Uh yeah. The uh How, how's Power Athlete Radio doing in France? Can we get uh, stats on that? Uh,
2: actually Well, we just went to zero. <laughs> uh which is fine, seeing as that um
1: <laughs> Amazing fries I'm, and toast. Uh, French fries, French toast. No pa- one uh, them? Uh,
3: no. Power, what? That's <laughs> no <good>. power <laughs> athlete means Freedom
2: Fries. Power mm-hmm. Athlete means something different in France. It's fucking douchebag that followed our training that decided to call us Jim Power Athlete. Oh. Trans yeah. golfers. Uh, and then he went and trademarked it. When he realized that the Madrid Accord, I hadn't trademarked in uh, France. And then when I hit him up, he's like, "Oh, I followed your training, and uh, Power Athlete is now my trademark." <laughs>
1: so, I mean, let's look at this pragmatically. <laughs> <laughs> Number <laughs> one, so uh, there's a Frenchman out there who admires Power Athlete, thinks it's a great name, sees an opportunity, takes it. Seems crafty. Number two, there's a huge invasion into uh, onto a beach that's fully fortified and defended by the Germans. And the French are like, this seems like a bad idea. We're just going to sit this one out. You guys go ahead. Well... It seems act- like they're just kind of... Actually, the Germans
2: rolled tanks through, without, and they took France without a shot. So when the Germans like showed up at the border with the tank, they were just like, come on in,
1: have French bread. It sounds like they're le tired.
3: I'm just uh, le tired. <laughs> have y'all seen... We didn't get into movies this podcast. Have y'all seen Dunkirk? Uh, no, but I've, I, I've seen yes, it. but I have seen it talked about like five it. different times yeah. within like the last couple it. weeks. So
1: I watched it. it. Uh, I, but yes, t- the, I point,
3: the point here is it's British. So British citizens take their little boats to help save and rescue uh, retreating soldiers because they w- didn't get help from the French.
1: Dude, um, but the way it's the, like the time is folded through the plot, oh, I didn't yeah, track on any beautiful. of it. I, yeah, yeah, like I, I, I was like, this, this it's is
3: Christopher yeah. Nolan's follow up following mm-hmm. his Batman's. Mm-hmm. Well, the, uh, um, yeah, no, I'm
2: actually that's on my to do list. Awesome. It's great. Speaking
1: uh, of to-do lists, I have one for our listeners, Text, Go on. You, listener, if you're listening to this as a coach and you're looking to step up your craft of coaching and you need to build some guardrails and you need a system to apply, have I got a surprise for you on academy.powerathletehq.com. We have a collection of courses with our flagship course being the Power Athlete Methodology course, the level one course that is designed specifically to accomplish this text. Am I wrong?
3: You are not wrong. Am I wrong? Never. No, Walter, you're not wrong. You're just an asshole. But (laughs) the, the course is focused on application. So I love the fact that you laugh at your own jokes uh, before anybody else can. Have you ever
1: noticed that? First off, that's not like, a joke. It's
0: a movie. <laughs>
2: it's a movie quote. <laughs> no, like I laugh because you like you're like as you're saying
3: the laugh because I know you're you're just an asshole. Like you. You well, can't laugh, Luke, like, is, Luke is conditioned to do that because Callie would laugh right. at his jokes uh, before he could finish. <laughs> that, Callie's
1: not here to cackle, uh, okay, so i right. gotta, I got to do my best so Callie cackle. I feel like
2: we need like one of those laugh buttons of Callie's...
3: <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. We could get that. The show is missing a laugh track, uh, but the Power Athlete Academy, it is focused 100% on application. So a gap that we viewed within the strength and conditioning education space is that fast-track tool to hit the ground running Mm -hmm. as a strength and conditioning professional. No matter the level, if you are a micro-gym owner working one-on-one or with small group athletes, a coach just getting into the high school or the collegiate strength and conditioning game, or a parent. We have an alarming amount of parents go through our courses to help train. Is it alarming, or is it... um... It's surprising to me, but... I I non-alarming. I would say, uh, like, it's
2: a relieving. Like, I, I, mm. I feel relief knowing that parents but he's, are in the methodology.
3: Texas never felt
1: such relief. That's why he's alarmed.
3: Yeah. I've never. Is that a good say? He's never had a release. <laughs> yeah, these feelings. <laughs> I've, I'm not used to these feelings, John. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm happy. Did for I the say use two? Fathers and you mothers. better use three.
1: <laughs> There's also the, the people who are not the people. Yeah, people. The f- individuals are also sport coaches. I'm thinking of a couple of our guys, sport coaches in the high school space who all of a sudden have access to a weight room. And now they have to be the, the, weight, the strength coach as well.
3: Yep, and they are aiming to train, change a culture because yeah. they are the low person on the totem pole that gets handed the weight room. Not uncommon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So now we really emphasize movement, connection, and transfer of your training to this field, the court, the sport, whether you're volleyball, basketball, Football, any other field, fill in sport. the blank, right? Yeah, it's it's speaking to movement and unlocking athletic potential,
1: and a perfect complement to that course content. Is the info we're going to be talking about today? One hundred percent. So, yeah. if you're interested in these courses, we have some free courses, we have some smaller courses, we've got some large courses. Our courses are fabulous; they are the best courses out there. Head to academy.powerathletehq.com. Is that worth a self laugh?
2: Yeah, no. I've, uh, they're uh, <laughs> it's uh, unexpected. That's what we call the Dunning Kruger courses.
1: The Dun- they're the most fabulous. They're the greatest course. courses. They're, the they're, greatest they're
2: These are the best courses on the planet. I have courses. the best courses.
1: Yes, yes, we do. Uh, and we are talking to a man who has the best communication book, absolutely the best, Mr. Nick, Nick Winkleman.
3: Yes, so- Nick Nick is the head athletic performance and science for Irish Rugby Football Union mm-hmm. and a Power Athlete Radio alum, Three twenty-eight, number 328. Mm-hmm. So he's got a long storied history with Exos, NFL Combine Development, and working with several military and professional athletes. And now he has spent... 10 years, 10 mm-hmm. years of his coaching career in life. Conceptualizing. Conceptualizing and writing and editing and unleashing the language of coaching, the art and science of teaching movement, and his new book.
1: And most importantly, ladies and gentlemen, Nick Winkleman settles a debate. I feel that, that I won I this have. argument. I don't think so. Uh, I feel like he did. Um, Wait, Tex the, yeah,
2: the music. He that, did uh, that, that the creation of music from a piano has a higher degree of technical proficiency than making samples. Now, is it more creative? I don't think so, because I think like it's not like but Texas... But that's one piece of the E Street Band, John. It's not like Tex is mm-hmm. sitting down and writing music. He's just trying to learn. Right. Uh, he's trying to follow in the footsteps of others that have you know proven themselves great, whereas a guy like Nick is taking his skill set to create new mm-hmm. music, which to me is a greater expression of talent than just being an autistic parrot.
1: <laughs> I John, wow. It's the most eloquently put I, I can't agree more. Uh, burn, no, that's but, the most eloquent burn that
2: John's Oh yeah, ever no, in. I'm I've all Uh, like like you probably were listening to it and being like the burn is coming (laughs) it's coming it's like a real slow it's like a slow punch that just (laughs) knocks you out
1: uh however one thing we do got to get into maybe next time we have nick on is playing the midi versus playing the piano because that was another debate alongside this one that i don't think we settled today because we had to ultimately get out of this loop of whatever we were talking about.
2: Right. Uh, I'm also interested for the listeners that are following the uh, five weeks to 20-inch arms. How many are at their... How close do they uh, get to their goal?
1: I did notice you put you put um, you posted in the, the Instagram group chat an individual who appears to be following that program <laughs> who is spotting that dude on the dumbbell bench. <laughs> <laughs> how to get 20-inch arms uh, in 20 days in it, India. Inject a bunch of... What is that? Saline or whatever uh, No,
2: it it's uh, synthol, uh, synthol. Synthol. Uh, synthol, which is an oil... Uh, that dude, like, I, uh, like I couldn't stop laughing. Like the dude's standing there and he's like, Oh, you know, the tank top. Like I look pretty good. <laughs> and it's like, like they look like boils all over his body. What yeah. the fuck? Like, like the fact that people think that looks good.
1: It's crazy <sighs> yeah. to me. Sad. It's sad. And I'll tell you what's not sad. I'll tell you what is sad is us delaying this episode any further. Let's get into it. Let's chat with Mr. Nick Wickelman, Shall we? We shall.
3: speaking of haircuts, Nick, did you leave the house, or do you have a very skilled barber in the family?
4: Listen, my my wife has taken up. Uh, she's baking bread now, like doing it the. She's, she's got the yeast and everything that she grows on a daily basis. So she's doing the proper bread making thing. And she bought some, you know, so, some shears. And she's like, "Listen, I want to have a go at shaving your head. No, no one's going to see you." She used to just shave the whole thing. She's like, "But I'm a master of fade." So we're about we're about three haircuts in. I don't know if I'm ready to turn my head sideways yet, but from the front on, from the front on in the Zoom calls, she's rocking. Me.
2: What was the well uh, What was the one with um, um It was no, who was yeah, it was Martin Short on uh, the deal where he just had like the flip on his front of his hair. Ne- um, oh,
1: uh, the character. Yeah, you're talking about. yeah,
2: on Saturday Night Live.
1: I can't remember. I can visualize it, though. I was going to say, a movie you got too. like a
2: little spiky kind of like faux hockey kind of. Yeah, blunt, exactly.
1: Like,
4: it's very shaped
2: in. Yeah, yeah it is. Good.
4: aerodynamic on
1: these things. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It complements the uh, the stubble. I think yeah. it, you look fantastic, pal. <laughs> so do you guys. So do you guys. In your, in your socially
4: distanced room you're
1: in. I know. Well, our room's six feet away from people. And well, Tex does I, have I, a six-foot I, wingspan. Oh, yeah. so thanks, bro. <laughs> and, Logo gadget yeah, art.
3: With both hands. Uh-huh. Like, oh, uh-huh. total. <laughs> yeah, total. <laughs> uh, and Nick, you've been making your rounds via your DJ show live on Instagram. So I tuned in to to a couple that were very Just close Blade to an argument. <laughs> no, it was close to an argument that Luke and I had about DJs versus pianist. Uh-huh. And I figured, hey, Nick's going live. I'm going to tune in and watch this watch this magic work nick this donkey over here
1: doesn't think it takes any sort of <laughs> talent or no. artistry
3: no it's different
1: to roll a live show for like behind a board it's different with turntables well,
4: I'll, I'll put it i'll put it this way i know how well i know how long it's taken to get to my skill level which is which is at a very low skill level and i can tell you i got here a lot quicker than i would learning the piano and i can i can uh, let's say mask a level of skill with DJing that I could not mask on the piano, so I understand where Tex is coming from, but uh, but it hurts
1: Tex. It doesn't because text. he understands it doesn't mean he agrees. <laughs> Listen, well, I understand all is, your novel opinions. What's weird
2: is he fucking sits at home playing the piano in his marshmallow helmet. You're
4: not wrong. Uh. So, my
1: but my point was, what do you know? What do you call those um, the synthesizers that have like uh, the grid, the buttons? Do you know what I'm talking about, Nick? Yeah, they're, they're
4: usually called MIDI controllers. Yeah,
1: midis. So, like, if you have 128-key MIDI yeah. or whatever the numbers would shake out to be, to, like, use that MIDI to to build out a tune or a song or a track or whatever is as challenging as a piano would be my argument. But then I stepped I, I, it up.
4: I would say a lot, of DJing, a lot of DJing is in the preparation of it because right. it, it actually, we use a lot of the, the piano keys to set it up. And that... A song has a a beats per minute. It has a key that it's played in. It has a certain drum beat. You know, some drums are on the four, right, on every single count. And so all of those elements play into how well two songs merge together to create this, you know, 30-second experience that will never happen again when you bring them in. Mm -hmm. And then you start to add in your, your, your various levels of effects on the song. Yes, the complexity can get up there pretty quick if we want to nerd out on DJing.
3: Okay, so, so I then win. we have Bruce Springsteen <laughs> in the E Street Band in oh. which we got a pianist, we got a saxophone player, we got Bruce, we got Bruce's wife, mm-hmm. and then the drum, Max, I think, I forget his last name, but he was on one of the... Big fan, th- huh? Jay Leno's drummer for a long oh, time. Oh, uh, yeah, Wein- yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but then they all have to be on the same page for three hours and mm-hmm. just fucking rock. Yeah, but like you go to one of those EDM
2: shows and though they have like two hundred thousand people there, and those dudes fucking burn those kids to the hey, ground. Bruce has played in front of two uh, thousand. I'm thousand. I'm telling you, as a show as you think that Bruce Springsteen and not to take anything from Bruce Springsteen and the Eastern Band, but like if you go to one of those EDM shows, those festival shows, like I've never seen anything fucking like mm-hmm. it. Never been.
1: So, m- but my point too is for the listeners and Nick for you as well. It's like Oktoberfest. I October also, Fest, but I also appreciate the traditional setup of strings, percussion. Right. Like like that certainly takes a a whole different set of talent coordination and teamwork, if you will. But that's also like by the time when the Rolling Stones play paint it black. Right. If, If you can if Keith Richards can and Mick Jagger can perform paint it black all doped up. Basically blacked out for thirty days straight, like more like fifty years straight, yeah dude, My, like th- you you become such a master of the craft where there there probably is very little artistry at that point, point. and th- that's not to say it, at the origin of this thing, there wasn't like this spark, this big bang per se to to come up with a a, a track like some of this stuff, but at the end, the Texas argument was these guys are in another buddy of mine, like they're just pushing play on their iPod. Because they've done all this work on the front end, which is could be true, like that could be true, but my argument was you've done the same thing with Mick Jagger and Painted Black and the Rolling Stones. They're just pressing play and their muscle memory to pull
3: that. I, where tool. are you going with I still, this? I'm stalling uh, the, for text. This is where I'm going in the late.
4: hold on. I this way. I'll put it this way. Uh, playing uh, a, a a given instrument, as you've identified, is kind of like. Cognition. It's the act of thinking and creating this original thing. DJing like metacognition. It's like thinking about thinking. It's taking things that people have already created and adding a layer that otherwise could never have been achieved with any one of those pieces of music. Preach. And so
2: Called sampling. It, is
4: not more, it is not more difficult. But it's equally valuable, let's say, in the positive effect it gives people. Otherwise, you wouldn't put a quarter million of people around someone pressing buttons.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks or, for coming on the show. Nick. <laughs> that'll <or, or, laughs> do it. Let's see, guys. We'll see you on that.
2: Does it survive? Screen. Like I, I always think, for things to really uh, like know their value, you have to survive the the test of time. So sure. you look yeah. at like Beethoven uh, or sorry, Mozart and Beethoven. Uh, Chopin, like all these things, like as soon as you hear it, even if you're not a classical music fan, like, you know, it's Frederick fucking Chopin, you know, like, you know, these things. And I always wonder like this music, like the Rolling Stones who I've seen, like, which just, it looks awful. Like I see them Double out there. Skeletons like, out like, there. Like, like 20 years ago, I was like, these dudes are freeze dried, And now they're still <laughs> out there. And my wife's like, we should go see the stones. I'm like, I think that they're just fucking
3: pop-up characters. <laughs> like they're not real. They're, 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 they're robots. Well, part of my argument was the creative process and Nick acknowledged it. So you were sampling to then use and expand upon mm-hmm. one person's creative work. Similar to many of the tools. What a transition. That Nick has applied in his latest book, the this book, The Language of Coaching. And within it, in one of the first chapters, you do use dials and your experience as a DJ to speak on attention. Oh. So Nick... For those of our listeners, last time we had you on, we spoke in depth about rugby. In this episode, I want to take the time to invest in your book on coaching and also your experience so we can deep dive the thought process and the creative intention behind this book. So if you wouldn't mind giving a little quick introduction about yourselves so people have not listened to episode 328, please go back and do so. But until then, Nick, who are you and what are you up to over in Ireland?
4: Well, thank you for having me back. I'm going to try to be brief with this one because I think I've given so many introductions now in the virtual tour of podcasts that I can't remember what I have and haven't said, so we'll try to keep this one short. Uh, By trade, I am a strength and conditioning coach. I have been now for over 15 years. I spent 10 of those years working at Exos, formerly Athletes Performance, where I was one part strength conditioning coach for the NFL combine preparation period. And then another part coach educator, helping them get their mentorship program off the ground, which now I think is in well over 30 countries coaching coaches over their uh, four day mentorship period. But after spending a lot of time there, inevitably I wanted to be challenged again. I think once you feel that you can no longer add value to a circumstance, you need to change the circumstance. And so for me, fortunately, having traveled around the world teaching for them, I knew that other cultures, other sports, other countries could provide a unique opportunity for me and my family, being as young as they are. So we moved to Ireland in 2016, uh, where I'm now the head of athletic performance and science for the Irish Rugby Football Union. And basically that fancy title means I get to work with a lot of cool people across our national teams and our four professional teams, making sure that our, our vision of how we develop the body physically is fit for purpose and evolving as the game evolves across all of its various levels. And somewhere hiding inside of all of that is an unrelenting passion for how people coach and teach movement, which inevitably gave birth to the language of coaching.
1: Epic. How long did you work on the book, Nick? Oh gosh, from conception
4: over 10 years. But from a writing perspective, I went pen to paper in 2016.
1: So four, three and three and a half, four year endeavor, huh? Yeah.
4: Yeah. It's nice. uh, And that's, I mean, that's, that's a daily endeavor, you mm-hmm. know, for people to, to look at it. It's not like, hey, I'm gonna pick it up here and there. No, it was like every single weekend for almost four years was consumed by the book. And so to, to write a book, you need to have Either no family or a very supportive family, and luckily, I had the latter, and you know for, for them that 's why, even though my name's on the front, I, I joke with people, but in all seriousness, to write a book like that where it 's not edited it's you do the whole thing, you need a lot of, you need a lot of support to get it done that 's for sure.
1: Well, congratulations on getting out, and thanks for sending it our way uh, yeah, absolutely. I see you have some bookmarks there. is that uh,
3: yeah we' typed up some questions as well. But you split the book into three big sections. Could you explain the the overarching theme behind the book, and then the three sections that you chose to take a deep dive?
4: Yes, Tex. Uh, so here we go. What what is the book about in simple terms? It's about how you, as a coach, connect to the athlete, and how you connect that athlete back to their movement. It's that simple. And we do that, if you would, think of those as bridges. We we have a number of bridges as coaches, but the one that we probably use more often than any other is our language, our communication. So to take that a level further, it's how your language as a coach connects you to the person and how through that language you connect them to the movements they're performing. And by deep diving into that, asking the question, is there a way to communicate at a principled level That increases the odds of you making better connections with the athlete, but then notably helping them make better connections with their movement, meaning that when they're with you, they're learning and whatever they're learning, they can take away. And that's such a big premise within the book. If the athlete requires you to be there, if you have to remind them for the change to reemerge, for the improvement in Olympic lifting technique to emerge, for the improvement in tackling to emerge, to the improvement in swinging the golf club to emerge. You have not taught them, and I stand by John Wooden's quote, you have not taught until they have learned. And learning is the process of sharing something with an athlete that they can own, integrate, and apply without your presence. And so everyone needs to know that that's the heartbeat behind the book. The book is helping you as a coach create independent athletes. While early on, there's a dependence on you for the initial engagement. But through that, you can unlock that dependence, allowing them to own the change. And we're all strength coaches on this call. I find that when we create deep, independent athletes, it actually strengthens their dependence on us because they see us as a source of value in that we add value to them. The value isn't only there when we are present. And so, again, these are core themes, if you would, the values behind the book, behind the words. This is what it's trying to achieve. This is the book's why, so to speak. Uh, the way I went about organizing it, I wanted to tell a story. Because at the end of the day, the book is about how coaching is the process of telling micro stories that stick in the mind of our athletes and that they can carry into battle that in my world is sport and competition. And so I want to tell a story. And so there's a number of stories. One story is, is mine. I literally share with the reader how I went through a process of identifying why language was important. How I started then to even search, where do you go to improve your language as a coach? To inevitably sharing how it materialized into, in my mind, a transformative experience. Not only for me, but most importantly for the athletes that I worked with. The second story is the story of the science. I'm a big believer that in a book like this, I have to do two things. I have to teach you how to fish and I need to give you fish because at the end of the day, I don't want you to starve on your way to learning how to fish. And so we try to balance both. And so part one is a matter of, I call it you know, part one is is about learning And we go through this idea of learning, attention, and memory are the three themes of the three chapters. And the goal of part one is to lay quite literally the foundation for all of coaching. Not just talking about communication, but understanding fundamentally how do athletes, clients, patients, kids, how do people learn to move? And these three chapters of learning, attention, and memory, I'm going to be honest you find those three chapters at the beginning of every single motor learning book, every single skill acquisition book. So I wasn't looking to rewrite a textbook here. And so I wrote it in my way, which was to tell stories, to illustrate the principles, the hard science in two to four syllable words versus six to eight syllable words. Thank you. Yes, exactly. Using stories about my kids building Legos about my kids learning to ride a bike, around little coaching scenarios that are fictional but highly relatable to the individual reader. And so the first three chapters lay the bedrock. And for me, I tell people, if you read those first three chapters, technically you know the principles that are going to come in the remainder of the book. And so what I like about that is when I reveal the principles on cueing language and communication in part two then you start to say oh I already knew that I already learned about that and it's that excitement of reading something that had already dawned on you a few chapters back so part one is learn part two we're talking about this idea of cueing and language and focus and specifically in part two we lay down the foundation of how language impacts movement and even though the book is called the language of coaching what we're really talking about is how what our athletes think impacts how they move. And simply as coaches, we use language to guide that thinking. And so within there, we lay down the principles of attentional focus, internal-external cueing, this continuum of cues that we can get into. And then one chapter is on how do you build cues. And one chapter is on how do you build analogies. And so within those two chapters, it's about arming coaches, movement professionals in general, with the tools they need to upgrade their language. So that when they're in a moment where they've exhausted everything that they might normally say to cue a squat or a sprint or a lunge, they have a mechanism to upgrade and refresh the next best cue for the person in front of them. And then the final chat, the final part, part three is a matter of application and understanding how to bring those cues to life. And it's taking the principles, if you would, and putting the rubber to the road. And the key thing in part three is we go through this idea. I don't know if you've gotten there yet, Tex or anyone, of the roadmap. And that in the first six chapters, we're laying the foundation. We're giving you the principles. We're putting up the house, so to speak. But now in chapter seven, you need to come to this moment of closing the book and actually bringing these ideas into real life. And I don't know about all you, but I've read plenty of books where I'm like, I'm going to apply that. That's really important here. But then a few weeks later, I'm like, what did that, what did I read again? How do I apply that? And so for me, it was important to take this idea around behavior change and looking at coaching as a behavior and helping put out a literal roadmap coaches can use to bring this thing into real life. And then finally, the last three chapters over 27 different movements apply everything that people will have read about. But the key thing for me is you shouldn't need those last three chapters. If you've gone through the first seven, you've got it, nailed on. But the last three, that's my language locker. That's giving you an insight on how I apply these principles for you to steal and use and consume until you've owned the principles yourself.
1: So what, as you're traveling around and you said you had 10-year career coaching coaches, right? What yeah. What behavioral patterns were you seeing in coaches that you're trying to break? Or maybe someone who's jumping into this book who's a coach, should they be aware of something they might be doing that they need to reflect a little bit and uh, challenge, I guess. Does that make sense, Nick? Yeah,
4: it does. The way, the way I phrase this is in the form of a thought experiment. And that is if I was to ask you, and this is for the listeners and for the three of you, if I was to ask you to give a presentation to a hundred of your closest peers, Would you rather that presentation be on program design and what you do or on coaching and how you do it? And I think if you just allow that question to marinate in your mind, most certainly we get people on both sides of the fence. But I'd stake a pretty large proportion of my salary that more people are going to be comfortable presenting on program design and what they do than coaching and how they do it. And so for me, I had that realization back two key moments when I was 19, 20, and then again in 2009 when I first took over the NFL Combine program. And it dawned on me one day that I spend more time coaching, using language and adapting in real time compared to how often I spend program design. But when I look at my education, it's disproportionately in the other direction, And so when we start to look at this, it's a matter of asking yourself, have you invested in examining how you coach, how you communicate, how you connect, or has the old phrase, the art of coaching been thrown at that in your mind? And hey, you just got to take time to learn your style, learn from other coaches, and you'll figure it out. And most certainly that is true, but that's as, as true for programming as it is true for coaching. But yet with programming, we expect that you've read the biomechanics, the physiology, the anatomy, the Bampa, the MELSIF, right? We have all these resources we go to and we reference. But then it seems that we, we lose our voice when we start talking about our voice and about communication and about language. And that was true for me because when I started to study this stuff, I couldn't find the resources. And most certainly the resources that were there did not have intuitive titles. You know, attention and motor skill learning – doesn't feel the same as a book called How to Cue Your Athletes, even though the principles are fundamentally the exact same. And so we had a terminology, a translation issue that I'm trying to combat with the language of coaching. And so that's a long-winded way to answer a very simple question, which is we need coaches to start thinking about how they coach, how they connect, and how they, as a physical variable, impact the performance and learning of the people in front of them.
2: Doesn't, um, doesn't the journey of the athlete have to mirror, like, the journey of the coach? And I, always, and I, I think on this because, uh, like, I always remember younger athletes being like, well, this coach doesn't like me. I don't want to, you know, go in and work for this coach, or I don't want to go and, you know, I'm not going to perform my best because so-and-so doesn't like me. And I always thought that was an interesting one where I'm like, man, I know I played for some coaches that didn't like me, but I still played because I was the best player, and they couldn't deny, like, the ability part. And I think that there becomes a point when, like – you know, maybe as a young athlete, like, you need the admiration and the respect and the desire of the coach to want to coach you. And there's, like, you akin that to, like, oh, he likes me, he's putting effort forth. Whereas I think as you get older and you kind of get in your journey a little bit, like, I do not give a shit. Just tell me the best information, <laughs> provide me the best opportunity. Um, put me, like, you know, and I, the, the analogy I always used was, like, hey, like, create the, me, like, if I'm Wiley e. Coyote, give me the biggest rocket, like, I just want to find the dude that straps me to the biggest rocket, hits it, and fucking lets me go. And uh, that was, uh, like, an interesting realization. And I, you know, we've, like, like listened to you, and I know a lot of with the athletes, there's this kind of, like, connection you make. Um, But do you see like as athletes mature over time when they kind of go on their journey, maybe they get a little older, a little saltier and they're like, we don't have to be friends. Just provide me the best information. And if we end up being friends, that's totally fine. I'm happy to have you. But at the end of the day, if you don't like me, I don't care. Just give me the best information, which is kind of this like almost like the education of the person where it's like emotional and then it all of a sudden becomes very like matter of fact and almost like analytical where it's like, hey, if you're having me do like, I might like you, but if we're doing something stupid and I know this doesn't pay dividends, I'm gonna fucking tell you.
4: Yeah. I, the way I look at it, you know, is is like this, and I think it's true on both sides of the coin. I put a post up the other day that just asked coaches to reflect on this: when you communicate with your athletes, you know, you have to ask yourself what is the why behind your communication, and that do you communicate because you want to sound good? Do you want to communicate because you want to be their friend? Are you communicating to fill space because you don't like silence or are you communicating to make a difference? And I believe each of those, which if you would, is the motivation or the why behind your communication is going to have a massive impact on the outcome because I can communicate just to be your buddy, to be your friend, to give you kind of that feel good session. And, within that form of communication, it might have zero difference on your performance, but because the athlete is sensing the value of the relationship, they dismiss the fact that they're not getting the outcome on the flip side. If you as a coach are salty, as you talked about there, then you better be delivering the outcome because you know that the athlete isn't there to be friends with you. But ultimately, I don't know what you guys think. My belief as a coach, you always have a responsibility to achieve the outcome. And I think as a coach, I can tune my style to be that relationship building players coach. And I can also revert to that autocratic style that I'm nobody's friend. And what I try to cover off in the book is I don't care what style you have. It doesn't change the bedrock principles of the language you use to teach movement. So it lasts and that they own it. And that's what's cool about it. Maybe you're like is your book around coaching styles? I'm like, well, in a way it is, but in a way it's not. You can build up, like Lego bricks, any coaching style out of the principles I've outlined here. But the key thing for me, the principle that should be the bedrock of every coach and every coaching style, you should be achieving outcomes that the player can own. And if that's not part of the why you coach, I'd question why you're coaching.
3: In the book, you demonstrate this with a couple stories and scenarios that describe the learning process. So we had motor performance versus motor learning. And I, I feel this jumps out at the point you're trying to make. Could you explain the difference between those two and examples that coaches may experience when they're trying their damnedest to cue the athlete, but then they just can't hold on to that execution of the clean, as the example in the book.
1: So Nick, before you get going, though, I do want to check out a quick word from our sponsors.
0: You know, when I hear music like this, I can't help but think about every cheesy 80s action movie ever. There's just something so great about how clearly fake every fight scene and workout montage is. And what's funny is the approach of creating sexy cut-ups of bullshit workouts with highly questionable application actually exists outside 80s movies and is more prevalent than ever. Well, like terrible 80s movies, there's so much training garbage out there to sort through these days. And while entertaining, it's scary to think that some people are actually falling for it. Think of the pyrotechnics in Commando, or the -the over-the-top use of body oil in the movie Over the Top. Is it possible that they're trying to distract us from the completely unrealistic plotline, kind of like a sexy-looking program with virtually no performance transfer? This is exactly why Power Athlete has been battling the bullshit for over a decade. The research, testing, and retesting that the coaches at Power Athlete HQ have done to create athletic training programs like... Field Strong, and Bedrock is unparalleled. We chose to further refine our templates to create Grindstone, Jack Street, Lean Enable, and Hammer because we know that specific goals require specific stimuli. Okay, here's where the shameless plug comes in. A lot of work goes into developing the absolute best program and user experience possible. Just ask our partners at Train Heroic who have been with us every step of the way and are equally dedicated to empowering your performance as we are. They are relentless when it comes to ensuring that your journey to self-improvement is propelled by the absolute best technology. When you join a power athlete program on Train Heroic, the first thing you should do is take a giant sigh of relief, seriously, because now you're in the hands of founder and 10-year NFL veteran John Wellborn and his team of world-class coaches. And for less than a dollar a day, you've just become part of a community of like-minded folks who all want the same thing, performance. And if this whole 80s movie metaphor thing makes no sense to you because you were born after 1990, simply substitute Star Wars episodes one through three. Who has the time or the patience for an all-show, no-go, imposter program? Head to powerathletehq.com backslash training to empower your performance today. Now back to the show.
1: All right, we're back, ladies and gentlemen.
2: (laughs) Nick, uh, don't worry, we don't really have sponsors.
1: Well, My mom's (laughs) this travel agency in the plug.
2: I was was gonna say uh, he—he's just trying to make an awkward pause, just trying to break up the monotony. But yeah, and all—all it is is
1: really—and we're back. Well, I was gonna—you know—I was gonna promote. um, I don't know. Maybe we'll promote. We—I mean, what we did there was promote one of our most valued products. Nick, carry on. <laughs>
3: <laughs> what was the question, though? Uh, Nobody knows. Uh, motor. <laughs> Nobody knows. Okay. Motor performance versus motor learning.
4: Motor performance, yes. Very and fancy then, term.
3: Yep. Acquisition versus retention. Just that, that section in that chapter one.
4: Yeah, for sure. And, and let I'll, I'll be honest. These are going to be synonyms. These, these are different ways to say the same thing. So, okay, let's use a practical example from the book that everyone can relate to. So it's a Monday- you're a strength coach, you're working on an Olympic lift or insert your favorite movement here, and you're working with a given athlete called Athlete A, and you're queuing them up, and you've been working with them for a couple of weeks, and finally you have, let's say, a breakthrough moment. You find a cue that seems to be working really well for them, and you tell them to stick with it, and you move down to the next rack, so on and so forth, and here you go. Now you come back, uh, let's say, a week later, and you're watching that athlete in particular because you know they've been struggling with it, and they're back into that same set of the Olympic lift, you're like, okay, you've said nothing to them. Did the change hold? Did they own the change? And as you look over at them, you say, no. They're back to, to leaving their hips back or they're back rounded, whatever it is. You go over, you give them the cue, you tell them, hey, keep your back straight, chest up, and all of a sudden, oh, okay, cool. They're able to make the change again. And it's kind of like this vicious cycle of one step forward, one step back. I think absolutely everybody listening will have had that experience and probably it is is the demise of many coaches it does their head in, like why can this thing not stick? And in that very question is why we need to have these two terms, motor performance versus motor learning. And let's be honest, the word performance means a lot of different things to different people. So, so let me be clear in defining them. Motor performance is the acute change, like the the right now change, that comes from giving that cue. So that coach gives the cue, cleans up the Olympic lift, happy days. You've seen an improvement in motor performance, literally. But it's only when that player comes back and you have not reminded them of the initial thing you did to help them in the first place that you get an opportunity to assess motor learning. Did they learn it? Did they own the change? And so in that example, we saw what happens to so many coaches. There was an improvement with motor performance on the back of an intervention, a cue, but there was not motor learning, or at least not the level of motor learning that the person had wanted. But many coaches, I think they miss this because what do they immediately do on that next Monday? They go right back in with the cue. They see the change. It validates their importance and their effectiveness, and they can go to bed at night again. And that's why, as coaches, we need to have a very strong north star, that what we're chasing is not improvement on the back of a reminder or on the back of our presence, but the fact that that improvement holds without the reminder or without our presence. And the biggest litmus test in sport is their ability to go out under the lights, when it matters, and get it done if you're a sport coach. And so that's the difference between performance and learning. And to use the secondary terms text you brought up, acquisition is when you're in the process of coaching, when you're in the process of, of betting down the stimulus with your cues and your drills to cause the learning to occur. Retention is when you bring that person in, in that next Monday. You give them no reminders and say, okay, have a go. Let's see what your body remembers. And in the book, I call those silent sets. We want to have these silent sets when we're assessing learning. And I would always tell my combine guys and I tell my athletes, now, if I'm not talking, it is your opportunity to own the moment. Don't think because I am silent, I'm not watching and listening. If I'm always talking and driving the process, how the heck are you going to learn to own this thing that you're here for? And so to the degree that I share my coaching philosophy, that's one, let's say, principle I'll always share with my athletes.
1: Now, Nick, do you, and forgive me, I haven't read the book, uh, do you also take into account that you know, the training ultimately, that residual carryover should also address some limiting factors on the pitch or in the court, right? If you're seeing an athlete, let's say playing basketball, who isn't strong at boxing out and you're trying to build that skill set in the weight room. Like it, it doesn't, the cues don't just carry over to the lift, but the execution of the lift should carry over to the, the skills and drills and components of play. Right?
4: So as, as if, if Texas finished chapter one, he'll know before the section he's referring to, I address that very question. It's actually the very first question I seek to address in the book. And that is what, What does our coaching actually do? Because we all know that people could just go into the weight room, lift weights, get bigger, faster, stronger, with not a lot of coaching to support it. And their performance, right, is going to improve. But yet we still have coaches. And so we know it's not simply enough to go to practice and do the drills. We know it's not simply enough to come into the weight room and lift the weights. Otherwise we would not have an occupation nor would there be a podcast to talk about coaching. And so here we go. A coach must have some purpose. What the heck is it? And so the way I start to articulate this in the book is through, we might've talked about this last time, this three P model that I analogize to the car and driver. And that is, can the athletes get in the right positions? Like literally do they have the mobility stability to get into the physical positions? Power, power, Do they have the strength and power qualities to perform the movement? Take something like acceleration or a broad jump. You need to have good strength to body weight ratio to be able to perform those effectively independent of your coordination. If your engine is not big enough, it's going to affect how you physically move. And then the top P is pattern. How do you take all those physical assets and put them together into what we call coordination? And so in the book, I clearly articulate that the position and power, the physical qualities relate to the car and our program, the trainable features of the body most certainly need to be addressed. But then it's that top piece where we're worried about the driver. How do we actually navigate that vehicle? That's the pattern. And as Stu McMillan at Altus says, you can't fix a mechanical error with a technical cue which means you can't fix a car problem with a driver cue. If my back tire is flat, my back tire is flat. Going and find my, finding myself a formula one driver does not change the fact that the back tire is flat. And so I use the terms, is it trainable or coachable? Is it trainable or coachable? And ultimately what people have to understand in reading the book is that all of these physical qualities, these trainable qualities are handbrakes they are limiting factors on the movement you're trying to coach. But once you understand them and you develop them still in parallel, you've got to coach that person to be a better driver, to be able to navigate that vehicle better. And that's where our language comes in. And so being able to discern between driver and car problems is critical to knowing how to apply this, because let's be honest, we've all had the coach possibly even been the coach that we're queuing till we're blue in the face, but the problem was mobility stability strength or power and so being able to clearly delineate those is central to knowing where language can help and where it can't
3: and yet you, you i'll show these guys the picture but your 3p model i thought this was fascinating and we had some similar terms and a 3p model that we're two two where we we possibly put, three to four to five i was gonna say we have a lot of three <laughs> we, we do so nick your 3p model that you lead the book off with you have position, power, pattern, and performance. And I'll show these guys the image that here. was a 4P model?
1: John, don't we're not, you know, yeah, we're splitting yeah, I'm, hairs I'm sorry. About I'm, sorry. I'm, gonna, <laughs> I'm
3: about to loop you in here, John. So, so we, we have, we lead off with posture. So it goes posture, position, and into patterning. And patterning is that coaching and education. And this is something that really jumped out to me when I first met John. And speaking of the importance of weight room training for performance in the transfer. So, could you explain that three P model? And I mean, his posture implied. Here we almost began with posture. John, could you could you lead in with just the your yeah, experience? Well, uh,
2: with actually, the-, the the posture is kind of what he's talking about in in his first three P, which is yeah. Yeah. position. Like, can you get into position? Can you maintain posture? And I I had this like interesting revelation, and I think it was like in 1999 2000 that. Um, uh that the reason people won and lost in football had little to do with effort it came down to who could maintain their position longer under uh Mm -hmm. duration under load so like if i'm an offensive lineman and i go to set in space and speed is my limiting factor and i can't get there and when i do get there it looks like a runaway beer cart then the guy i'm going to get my ass bowled but if all of a sudden i take a great set everything looks good but i don't have the strength to maintain my position as the defensive lineman hits me and puts me under load so i found like change of direction, you know, uh, you know, speed and also uh, external force and load, or a linebacker blitzes and I'm in not a good position, he gets underneath me and drives me back. Like, those factors and the person that could maintain posi- their position and their technique longer under those factors actually won like 99.9% of the time. So I looked at it just kind of analytically like, okay, if I can maintain my technique longer and my position longer than the individual I'm playing against, I should be fairly successful. And then you have to look at it and say, well, it's not that easy. He's he's getting paid, too. He's a big, strong dude that lifts weights. So what I have to do is I have to be a a master of my movement. I got to be extremely, like, um, uh, margin of error, extremely, like, tiny in terms of, like, did my foot position, my knee stay over my instep, what does my big toe look like, Am I, is my foot vertical, how do I set, where's my hip position, do, do I have my head back, and I went through all these pieces, and then I was like, alright, well let's test it, and then we got into practice, and the dude would hit me, and my position was was good, And but was I strong enough to maintain and deliver force? And then is that like, as I started kind of shoring up all these pieces, all of a sudden I didn't fucking lose anymore. And uh, I was going out and like, uh, doing playing very well, and people were like, oh, you've made such improvement. And I'm like, um... Nobody explained it to me like this. Nobody explained it to me like they just said, hey, you know, do this technique, and then if you win or lose, and I I got really frustrated with offensive line coaching um, because they did not explain it like the way that it made sense to me, and then Mm -hmm. I just took the same approach in the weight room. All right, what's my limiting factor on this back squat? Uh, You know, why is it I can squat, you know, 600 pounds, but 605 folds me like a taco, Uh, And I and I took the exact same position and being like, okay, if I know what the positions I'm strong in, in terms of playing football, why can't I challenge posture and position using barbells and external resistance and force in the weight room to challenge those same positions? And then as I became stronger in those ones, when I went out to the field, all of a sudden, like people couldn't get me out of position. Uh, I was able to play with my hips lower and I was able to punch and stay and move and punch and slide and do all the little jiggy shit from those power positions. And that's where the 3P model came from, that idea of, like, you know, posture and position and um, what is it? posture and position and pattern. and pattern. So, but then you have to be able to have patterned it correctly enough to be able to put somebody in, like, heat, noise, uh, you know, fatigue, injury, all these other extraneous factors. And can your, can have you wired this stuff to the point where, like, all of a sudden, I take a helmet to the leg and I break my fibula clean in half. They they cast me five days and I played three weeks later. I come back in that first game. I go against Hall of Famer Warren Sapp and basically end up on John Madden's horse trailer for whooping his ass. So I couldn't run; had a broken leg that was moving, and yet I still was able to maintain and go out there and do that. So like that's kind of where a lot of the coaching stuff for me, especially like whether it's offensive line, weight room, whatever, uh, I got really frustrated with it because the way like. I knew I couldn't be the only one, and when I would explain it to people, and I'm sure you do this too, Nick, as you're talking, like all of a sudden you just see them fucking get glazed over in the eyes because they have no fucking idea what you're talking about. And I explained this to strength coaches I had. I explained it to offensive line coaches. I've explained it to, you know, college football players going to play in the NFL. And I'm like, you know, if you can understand this level of, like, You know, like, do you just want to turn on your cell phone or do you want to understand how it connects with radio towers and went through all this? Like, what kind of learner are you? Because there's real guys and you know this in professional sports in the NFL or, you know, rugby, whatever it looks like, that can just turn the phone on and do anything. And they don't have to. But unfortunately, I wasn't that dude and I I needed to understand these pieces. And I remember talking to uh, like NFL strength coaches and then being like, most guys show up here and can play. And they're either – all they have to do is stay healthy and they'll be in the Hall of Fame. They'll be all pros. And very few people actually build themselves into players. And I remember thinking, like, is that a – and then I pose this. I'm like, is that your laziness or the fact that you guys don't understand that if you break the pieces down and teach them in such a way and have a connection with the athlete where he understands and there's an inherent, like, knowledge, understanding where he's pulled the marrow out – if he has the physical attributes, you should be able to assemble these people in such a way that makes them you know, useful robots or useful toys or whatever you want to call it. Because you know, we used to joke and you get cut, you get sent to the island of Misfit Toys. So that that was a lot of what we see within Power Athlete and the 3P models and the way I looked at it is like, if I can break it down to athletes in this way, they should be able to reassemble this in, into a positive way.
4: Yeah, I mean, well, John, you've got a number of really important points that the key thing for me is, we're saying the exact same thing with our three piece uh, but to your last point yeah the question is are they struggling to understand or are you struggling to teach i think so often in sport we're conditioned to saying they're struggling to understand but we're not conditioned to say we are struggling to teach but then we say well hold on your coaching narrative hasn't changed across your thousand athletes in your 25 year career yet we know each of them is an n of one shouldn't we be shifting that a little bit to not say that we don't have our individual style as a coach but most certainly how do you adapt to the individual i think the modern person in general expects that of its fellow person especially a coach or a teacher there's a bit more of the what's in it for me ethos out there nowadays and so i think coaches more and more are going to be under the pump of being able to adapt to the individual in front of them which hopefully a book like this can, can help but text back to your original question on drawing the parallel you know john's right for me when i say the word position it literally is meant to be general can you get into the body positions the bottom of the squat the top of the squat right loading before the tackle to completing the extension through the tackle can i get into these endpoint body positions do i have the mobility stability and know-how and then okay do i actually have the force generating capacity to do something when i move from position a to position b And then so I have the horsepower, I have the positions, okay, A to B, what does the pattern physically look like, you know? And so those three things together, for me, it hasn't failed me in a decade of thinking that way. And John, I think it aligns perfectly well to everything you've just said. And funny enough, it's either in chapter four or five, I put in a sub-principle, applying the three Ps, where I say posture before pattern, Mm -hmm. for the singular reason that you just eloquently outlined.
2: Yeah, it's um, it, like, you, you know, coaching with athletes and especially like at the level you're at, like you see people do stuff and you're kind of like at, at least you take a step away and you're like, man, there's so many attributes. This guy is so physically gifted. How is it that we can't take those physical gifts and why can't he manifest those in like this kind of like athletic sense of the way? And I think like as a coach, you're always kind of looking at it like to hack into this. I, um, I talked to Will Shields, who uh, I played next to at the Chiefs, and you know 14-year uh, Hall of Famer. He called me the other day, and we were just kind of laughing, talking about like uh, the fundamental things that he did and like we all did um, to play on what's now considered, I, I always find this like a source of pride, that like the best line in pro football history. I heard them say that the other day, and I was like, oh, fuck, that's pretty good company to be in. Um, but like the, uh, uh, you know, the idea that the fundamentals always be the fundamentals and the way you teach stuff in here and then realizing each player has certain attributes that they have to build upon and that it's just trying to take people that are carbon copies and say, hey, uh, this is the way I do it as a coach. Um, find me a bunch of guys that can do it my way opposed from looking at everybody. And that was what uh, you know, Will was talking about. He's like, you know, I went down and worked with Charles Bentley and they're looking for a system To like everybody goes into and he's like the things that John did were very different than the things I did, but everybody had their strengths and their ability to be the best version. And so a lot with our training is I'm like, dude, find your wheelhouse and be the best you can in the wheelhouse. And my job as a coach is to understand what you do best and then to, to fucking turn that up to 10. So if other things are a little deficient, then that becomes, and Will was like, you know, there was four or five things I could do and there was a whole bunch of stuff I couldn't. It just so happened that those four or five things nobody could uh, nobody could defend against. And I always thought that, like, that, but that comes down, like you said, like you as a strength coach or you as a position coach or you as a, you know, sport coach, understanding and and having the wherewithal. And that's why I really appreciate um, like this book and like any of the books about coaching, because I think, and, and you know this, and I think this is what you're, you know, to use a point, like raging against is this idea of like, it's not about sets and reps everybody wants this perfect program and this is what we did and what is the running and this. And you're like, at the end of the day, like all that's great. But like if the practical application and your understanding of how to pull the best out of your athletes by assessing who they are and the pieces that allow them to be the best versions of themselves, then we're effectively fucking wasting our time.
4: It's it's like, how do you get it off the program and into the person? Yeah, That's the big thing for me. How do you get it off the program and into the person? And we we do that in in many ways, but the one we do it more any anyway is through our language and the key thing for me, and you said there, John, is we're not, we're not trying to speak our language. We're trying to speak their language. And that's what I'm trying to help coaches do because we're not, we're not taught to do that. I think great coaches get there probably by, by chance, more so than choice. And even if it is by choice, it's them reflecting on what they're doing. It's not that they've gone and found a, a principle-based approach. It wasn't until John Wooden started to write some of those books and give us a pyramid, did coaches start to look at those and say, hey, you know, I'm not very good at this stuff. And I don't naturally have a gravitational pull to even noticing this. But because this amazing coach has shed light on these principles, I'm actually going to be better for it. And my goal is that it doesn't take people the 10 years it took me to figure this stuff out through trial and error. And that's what I think every book should do. It should accelerate the next generation.
3: And you provide that opportunity for people to work through it. So it's a lot of workbook style within the book. So you have your lessons and then a lot of fill in the blank opportunities and then driving your own interpretations of the lessons. So I did appreciate that style of teaching within a book and understanding the distance learning model and the challenges that coaches face reading when it's, it's a, a a profession of apply.
4: Yeah, for, for sure. I mean, I'm going to be honest, it's it's not easy to help people crack open this thing they do all the time, communicating, but think very little about in terms of what sits behind it. And so for me, I felt we had to drip feed little thought experiments, little opportunities, almost like I'm trying to introduce you to your communication. I'm trying to introduce you to the engine, the the, the little man in the box, so to speak, that is driving a lot of your communication habits. And Texas, you'll know, as the book goes on, it asks you to engage in your own communication and interrogate it and use it more and more. And so it kind of progressively ramps up. And what I try to explain to people is I designed the book as a physical, like, like I, when I say this, I mean it literally, a behavior change tool. It is not designed to read and say, okay. Now we begin. B.S. I just don't think that's how it's going to work. I want you to be learning those micro lessons as we go. And each lesson builds on the next, builds on the next, builds on the next. So by the time you're done with the six chapters, you've not only read about the principles, but you've already applied them yourself. And therefore, when you get to chapter seven on the roadmap, you're already a few steps down that road.
1: Yeah, we have the same approach in our our online learning. The expectation is if you're taking the methodology course, you're not just sitting there chugging through, you know, sipping coffee, crushing 16 hours in four days. You're taking a lesson. You're applying it with your athletes. You're coming back. You're reflecting. You're dropping the, the lessons learned in the comments. And we find that the people who come out here, the next phase of our online learning is an in-person evaluation. The individuals who do that, mm. Thrive in the testing environment. The ones who don't, you can tell they've not used the tools. Well, they've
2: kind of learned it in a vacuum, which right. I, I think we caution people against. Like, if you're your own echo chamber, then you've started to...
1: And what's the challenge the is some of the... I shouldn't say some, a good chunk of the folks are in it for themselves, which is pretty noble, right? They, they want to be... They want to train smarter, and they don't really have clients to train yet. So they're doing... Like, they're trying to do this self-coaching preparation and they come in some, some people are pretty successful, but those also are the ones that once they're in the pit and they actually have other athletes to coach out here at the, the ranch, you can just see their eyes light up. Right. Yeah. And, and like, and very often they walk away and they're like, I'm ready. You know, the, the level of confidence they have, they're ready to coach their neighbor or, you know, whatever, whatever, wherever they're going to start at square zero. It's pretty cool to see that stuff unfold. I'm thinking of a few coaches in the block one network. Right, so now I think it's absolutely paramount. Like, if you if you're not willing to apply in parallel, you're really leaving so much on the table, right?
4: Well, a hundred percent. It would be you know if we think about the way that we teach skills, it would be a matter of you know going through every single skill a sport needs before we then ever play a game. And you know, I mean, we have to be able to test each of those skills one at a time and then start to layer them together and, and learning here is no different. And that's why I try to tell people the principles on which the book is based are the same principles I use to write the book.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it's, it's like, um, I'm not a golfer, but it's uh it's akin to like uh, going to the hitting range and the putting range and learn and trying to learn to golf without hitting actually...
1: range. Huh? Certainly not a golfer.
2: What's it called? Driving range. Yeah. Driving yeah the range. driving range and, like, and going to the, just putt. Uh, but then like actually getting out and, and, you know, walking the course or I was trying to use the analogy, uh, Zach Evanesh was hitting me up about welding and I was, and he's like, oh, can you learn it? And like, how did somebody teach you? And I'm like, no, you just gotta go be really awful. Uh, the old Dave Grohl, yeah. Grew. Like you got to get a, a welder. You got to like burn metal. You got to try to build stuff, uh, and you'll be really awful. But what what will happen is that your skills with grinding will improve <laughs> because you're trying to hide how shitty a welder you are. And then by the time you're a good welder, you have that skill already, and but you don't need it anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think a coaching is like a lot. Like I'm sure you've you know worked with people. You've been like, oh, shit, dude, I didn't handle that very well. But then you take that and you ref- you know you assess and. I I can think back on so many coaches uh, that I can, like, as I reflect back on, I think, what was going on in that guy's fucking life for him to act like that? Mm, Like, I I would love to call him up and be like, dude, you must have been in such a dark place to treat us like that. Like, like, and and just reach out and be like, man, like, your life must have either been extremely awful or this, and, I like i like want like uh, you should have to contact your athletes like 10 years and been like, I'm really sorry. I was in a dark place or like maybe I was in a good place or maybe they remember you in a bad light. But Billy Madison. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, uh, straight up. Like I I was thinking like Todd Rice, who was my strength coach in college. Like what darkness was that guy going with to act like that? And the hilarious part is his assistant and I are still our friends and he'll be like, I don't know, man, but it was a dark place.
4: I think it's got to be a dark place when you're a one way street. Right. And there's everything you're saying, but you can just see that none of it is, is is hitting. Right. We're out yelling, get down, get down, but no one's getting down. And so, and what do you do? You say it more often and you say it louder. And I think huh. the solution, the solution to so many coaching woes is right in front of them. Like, listen, if I'm working with you, Tex, it's like, did that cue make sense? Okay. I give you a bench press you smash the barbell through the ceiling. Okay, text. what am I asking you to do? Uh, you, you want me? I don't really know. You know what I mean? Like, if you Send just it. ask the question, if you just ask the question, you're going to get an answer. And that was one of the biggest things for me. And I try to highlight it in the book. It's like, if I'm trying to learn your language, I got to give you an opportunity to talk. And we all know that athletes don't talk just on their own, at least the rare ones do. And so I have to invite you into the conversation. And so I would tell my combine guys very early on, if I'm asking you a question, I'm not trying to be a dick here. I'm not just trying to assess whether or not you're listening. If I'm asking you what you're focusing on, I want you to shoot me straight because at the end of the day, you're running the 40 at Indianapolis, not me. And so I'm sincere and serious about getting your mind right to sit next to your body. And so we got to get these two things to dance together. You got to be honest with me. And so if I'm saying something that doesn't make sense, you got to let me know. And if I'm asking you a question. Get involved in the conversation, man. You want to know how I'm going to get pissed off if you don't take an active interest in your own learning. And so this was, but you know, I see you smiling, John, because a lot of these guys <laughs> they come from the autocratic,
2: yeah.
4: right? The autocratic, do as I say, not as I do. And they were used to the one-way street communication. Yeah. And I'm like, listen, when you get into the league, no one's going to teach you how to write. A check. No one's going to teach you how to balance a budget, man. If you don't show up on time, you're getting fine. No one's walking you to class anymore. And so if you haven't, take the opportunity right now to start owning every step you take. And so this is where trying to build in what's called some some humanistic life skills went alongside the coaching skills. But a lot of the guys seriously could not answer a question. They thought that there was some kind of agenda here. I was trying to catch them looking dumb.
2: But isn't that like uh, every football coach asks these like uh, extremely, I guess you could say, belittling rhetorical questions like yeah. what the fuck was going through your mind on this one? And they're like, uh, or like, you know, like, uh, did you
1: intentionally put your head up your ass? Yeah.
2: Um, <laughs> do you need to go outside and remove your head from your ass? How about mm-hmm. I rip off your ball so that you can't ever fucking do that again and nobody else that you infect will ever do this? I mean, that's like standard coaching. So uh, like especially maybe now in this kinder and gentler world, it's not the same. But I, I can think of probably a lot of times because coaches are so belittling. Like, I, I was actually there when a, a coach said to a guy, um, you're a pretty nice dude. I'd let you date my fucking sister. And I remember being like, wow, that's a real good one. Like, uh, yeah, I mean, so, so I think as athletes, you're used to dealing with... Um, uh, people always ask me why I didn't coach football because I feel like my intelligence was too high. Uh, you know, but you have to have a fairly low common denominator. But I just remember thinking, like... As athletes, you you just get conditioned into this point where I'm going to get belittled and that they're not really asking my opinion because they want something constructive. They're just asking in a kind of a condescending rhetorical way because they want to fucking try to lay a jab on me. So I think a lot of times athletes kind of just shut off and then all of a sudden you run into somebody. It's like, no, I legitimately want your input on this because we are trying to be successful. And I think the minute that an athlete actually feels that a coach is in their corner and not just trying to catch them in some way to fuck them over, all of a sudden, they're like, oh, shit, this guy wants me to be the best version. And then all of a sudden, you get buy-in. And I never understood why coaches didn't want that.
4: It's, and here's why. I don't think anyone ever told them that there was a way to doing that. I, I, I literally believe that. And just coaching practices have been passed down around the campfire from one generation to the next. Athlete goes from coach. They're used to the kind of coach, John, that you're identifying they don't go through any upskilling, They're not given principles of effective coaching. And all of a sudden, we just see this echo chamber from one generation of coaches to the next. And so, again, for me, it's a matter of how do we give coaches principles, but that we're not trying to create clones? Because for me, the art of coaching is the act of adapting. How do we arm coaches to still be them, to still have their style? but be able to adapt that style to fit the needs of the person in front of them. Because again, if you're not trying to make the person in front of you better, why are you coaching?
3: Valuable experience that I had was a young coach walking into different systems. So different weight rooms, different coaching styles, but then different systems and just seeing parallels of things that worked from these coaches that never had the opportunity. So almost seeing principles in action, but also a lot of bad coaching and what not to do's as takeaways. So where this book puts a coach, young coach, in a position to accelerate their learning experience when they do walk into those weight rooms, I still feel you need that weight room experience and going to different systems and programs rather than working your way up one coach's system and ladder until you're their assistant, bouncing around and getting different sport exposure, different coach exposure, but then seeing the themes and the principles that you present in the book.
4: This is in text, you need a canvas. All I'm trying to do with the book is help people understand what the paintbrush they have in their hand looks like. But you need the canvas, you need the environment. And the more diversity of canvases and context and environments you face, the better you're gonna get it using the tools in the book. The tools are never enough. You still need something you're trying to build.
3: I wanna take the time to highlight another tool in there. You discussed the, a coaching loop so yes. we have D, D, C, D, D. Can you touch on oh, that for you? I, I want to take away too much from the book, but touching on that. And I don't know what it, what was the thought process and discovery? Did you add one piece at a time in your discovery process or one or two things adjusted throughout your time? So
4: <clears throat> of all the models in the book, it, it's probably the most critical to understand from a communication perspective. And that is for the longest time when I was presenting on this stuff and what I called my, my presentation was what we say matters. I was just talking about cueing and, you know, to give that a definition, it's the last thing we say before the athlete moves. And so put differently, it's the idea we want them to think about while they move. But let's be honest. We, we communicate with our athletes far more than just that little micro cue. And I found that as I was presenting on how many cues to give and the principles behind effective cueing, a lot of the, call it the language habits, the communication habits that I was encouraging people to do away with actually had a role to play, but just not within the cue itself but that confused a lot of people because I would say things like, Hey, we need to use external cues. We need to use language that is focusing on the outcome, focusing on the environment or putting a picture in the mind, like driving forward, like a jet taking off. But we need to navigate our language away from saying things like extend your hip or squeeze your glute or tighten your abs because focusing on the micro in a multi-joint movement tends to degrade the macro execution of the whole skill. But people are like, so are you saying I can never reference the body again? And even in my own answer to the question, I'm like, no, just don't put it in your queue. But then I realized I never told them where to put it. And so as I was writing the book, I had to step back and say, I can't write this book unless I holistically zoom out and take communication in its all-encompassing glory when it comes to teaching movement." At the same time, I have to constrain myself somewhere because it's not a a global book on communication. And so, the way I theme it is this you're in the weight room, the session is started. You're on the field, the session is started. So, it's the whistle to whistle training session. So, that's constraint number one. Constraint number two is we're talking about the language you use to teach. Okay, cool. Constraint number two. And so, how do we conceptualize this? And I conceptualized it as, as a loop, like a song on a loop and that, you know, here we have a drill or a movement and we have some coaching before, during, and after, and then the next set before, during, and after, and our language seems to loop around the person and around their movements that they're performing, i.e. the coaching communication. And then I said, okay, what are the, the definitive discrete steps that we go through from a communication perspective? And here's the important question, what type of communication or put differently, what principles of communication should go into each of those steps. And that created these five. And so the five stand for, you describe it, you demonstrate it, you cue it, they do it, and then you debrief it, DDC, DD. And I break this down in a single graphic into what we call the long loop, which are the five steps I just described. And then the short loop which is just the last three Q, do debrief Q, do debrief and so the full loop is when you're teaching a movement for the first time or let's say you're reiterating a point or possibly working with a novice you know if i'm taking someone through an olympic lifting derivative that they've never done before i'm going to describe what's going to happen here's your foot position here's how you're going to address the bar here's your body position so on and so forth i'm likely going to do a demonstration possibly show them a video, or have another athlete do a demonstration. And if we think about the describe and demonstrate, they work together to give that athlete information, knowledge about the movement. John, you talked about that, right? Certain athletes need more knowledge about their skills. So the describe and demonstrate give them the knowledge. But knowledge of what is not the same of knowing how. And so what we see with those two pieces of information, they give the visual and the verbal. And psychologically, they play an important role. They increase my confidence because I know what I'm about to do. They lower my anxiety because I know what I'm about to do. And if the coach is clever, they're gonna connect this back to things that maybe they've already done in the past, further increasing my confidence to perform. So the describe and demonstrate is to upgrade the knowledge of what and psychologically prepare my self-belief to do it. Now, I don't know I don't know if people have thought of it that way, but that's the real value of the describe and demonstrate. But now I've just given you this dissertation possibly on the Olympic lifting derivative. We all know that attention, as I talk about in the book, is limited in capacity. It's the reason you turn the music down and put your sandwich down when you suddenly get into traffic because you have to focus on the road. And so we have to give them a single spotlight in the mind to guide this Olympic lifting derivative. So we take a pause, a deep breath. Okay, now to do all that stuff I just said, focus on, boom, insert Q here. And the punchline is it should be one Q, not two, not three, it should be one, and ideally something that's externally focused or based in analogy, something visual. So now, We've upgraded their knowledge of the what. We've calibrated their intention of how. Okay, now they go and perform it. And then when it's done, we debrief. And what's the sole purpose of the debrief? There's many ways to run it. Sometimes I can use comments. Sometimes I can use questions. But the key thing is this. Did their subjective experience applying the cue and feeling the movement match with what I objectively observed? And I'll be honest, the best cues change the movement positively and change the experience of the movement positively. That's what makes the cue sticky because the cue mentally feels good and physically feels good, which creates a craving that they want to continue to apply the cue to the movement because they're seeing a positive outcome. Right? It's like eating a bag of chips. The salt is the thing you're craving, so you continue to eat the chip. The cue creates the mental craving because it has a positive outcome on the movement. And so we describe, we demonstrate cue, do, debrief. Now, once I've been working with someone long enough, I don't need to re-describe or re-demonstrate every single time. And that's when we go from long loop to short loop, cue, do, and debrief.
3: Preach, preach. I want to take now what you talk about and discuss in the book in memory and this style (laughs) of coaching loop. And specifically talk about if we can game film so if we can revert back to the sport coach berating and some negative things that they throw around and applying this communication loop into game film is it too far away from the experience to take value or is it just far away enough that we can apply to practice or the next game
4: So I think we have to look at a number of things. We have to balance how much information we're gonna give them with their ability to remember and apply it to your point in practice and in competition. And so for me, when we look at that, if we are just machine gunning all the different things that have been done wrong, but yet we have not provided time for a solution to be identified or a solution to be identified even for one of the things it's going to be very difficult for that athlete to bring it forward especially if the whole experience is colored and negative and so for me a couple different things when it comes to game film the low-hanging fruit is this what behaviors did we see on the field that were positive that were possibly let's say improvements and can we start by reinforcing the good And this isn't just the the touchy-feely hug everyone sing kumbaya, but the reality is most athletes, many athletes, they're not as aware of what they're doing well as we maybe think that they are. And so reinforcing the good, especially if they've made significant improvements from one competition to the next, can start to solidify those positive behaviors. We all know the inconsistent player. I think one of the ways that we, get rid of the inconsistent player, is reinforcing what they do well when they do it well. Once we've then identified the areas for growth, the first thing I would ask the coach, okay, you saw them make this error, but were there any moments in the game where they didn't make that error in a contextually similar environment, right? Where maybe it was a tackle or it was a certain blocking position on a certain play. And so let's say it was a certain play that on two out of the five, They messed it up, but three out of five, they did really well. Well, are we reinforcing the behavior that we want, or are we simply citing the behavior that we don't? If I tell you don't do, I haven't given you a solution. But if I tell you to continue to focus on or to continue to behave like this, I've given you a singular thing to put your attention on. And so I think that's where the balance coaches have to draw how many things are they trying to get across? For me, it shouldn't be more than two or three in game film. And then notably, are they as disciplined in rewarding the positives as they are in disciplining the negatives? And even where there are negatives, are there equal examples of that same scenario being done correct? And why not use that as an example of what to do to reinforce them in a positive direction? And so this is where there's art, but just think of the amount of information you're trying to get across and the solution you're using, rather than telling them what not to do, reinforce what you want to see, especially if there's video evidence of it.
3: Uh, And this guy doesn't lie. Reason I asked this question is from my senior season in lacrosse 2008, our coach is like making zoom happy hours and we're watching our wins. So like, 12 years later, the film experience is very positive and we're highlighting shit that we did correct. (laughs) And he's like, he's cheersing us and like, we're all drinking beers. And man, a completely turntable experience. Did you call him out? Oh, 100%.
1: Yeah. Why didn't we have this talk back then? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We probably would have
3: won more games if you weren't so fucking negative, Captain Negativo. Yeah. So it's just funny and hilarious, but... S- experiencing coaching like that, and then going on to coach as a profession and working with so many different coaches, I'm like, man, you know, we got a short stick.
2: Uh, there's kind of an interesting one, like uh, my, we, I think we talked about it, how like the Rock when they asked him like why he's so uh, engaged with all of his um, like fans, and I guess didn't he yeah. say like so he was somewhere and like you know didn't have time to sign something, and he saw the effect that it had on that one person, and he doesn't want to affect that one person. You know, and even though, like, the athlete or whoever just forgets about it, I was thinking about that in terms of coaching. Like, think about, like, uh, a coach says something or does something and doesn't even remember saying it because it was such a non-existent thing. And then all of a sudden here's somebody, like, 20-plus years later who's like, you know, that was a pivotal point in my life when you said that and they remember it. And, like, that's happened to me where things that I've said or things I've done, like, I didn't even remember it. And then all of a sudden it comes back years later and you're like, Oh, I did not realize that that would have that altered that trajectory. So I think as a coach, you never really realize what the trajectory that you're creating. So you almost have to like, how do I want to, you know, like uh, almost like re- like removing emotion from it because you don't know how that's going to affect the athlete. I mean, you say something and next thing you know, the athlete turns you out or locks you out. So just being cognizant of that. I'm going to, Nick, I'm
3: going to take you real quick to pontificate slightly on what John said I'm coaching middle school lacrosse and stepping into with another coach that he didn't play in college, but is just passionate about the sport and has been with the program for a number of years. And getting a goalie, getting a kid to step into goal that's new to the sport is a challenge because they're scared of the ball. So now the kid applies and we're taking volunteers and the, the kid says that this program as a whole institution into the high school has never been known for their goalies. So immediately, I had the to. The coach s- says. The coach said that, yeah. the my, my assistant coach. And I had to step in to say, like, we have the opportunity. These kids have no idea about the high schoolers in the next six years of their career. We can create you can a high school. Called qu- lying. Yeah.
2: We've, I, I we, say we've that. been a culture of goalies. We no, are no, the no, toughest. No, no. In the- you
1: don't have to lie, you just you paint the reality. Right. So they don't We're know. We're creating a culture of goalies. That's, right. what's, that's what's called parenting.
3: Where you and just my vision is to apply the allure to this position, like a high school quarterback has this allure to it, that you got the biggest balls in the field, and you're stepping in and being the bravest of anyone. So, Did you just assume their gender? I don't think you can do that anymore. I coach boys lacrosse. Well,
2: you can't assume anything.
1: Including us. that you can't assume anything. That yeah. would be an
3: assumption. Yeah. <laughs> The mother of, of all fuck ups. Final question and circling around performance, and a story John recently told on a podcast about your teammate going against Dwight Freeney and saying, Is he just a man to you before the tunnel? Uh. So, and you have this in your book, Nick, and you focus on choking. And it's like the title of one of your chapters. So, why is this in the book? And number two, how can we protect our athletes from this negative experience in competition? Because we know they're playing to make be more than themselves.
4: Absolutely. So it's interesting when you start to get into, one, your own experience, but the research on this stuff. And on one hand, you have this group of researchers that have been proactively looking at how what an athlete or a client or a patient thinks while they move, uh, how does it impact their performance and learning as we've talked about. Uh, But equally, you've had this other line of research where they bring athletes into the lab for baseball and golf and other, let's say, discrete skills and they start to mimic pressure, right? They say, hey, you're competing against another person. They film them. They say they're being assessed by a coach Possibly they can get paid if they perform really well and so they start to manufacture conditions that are similar to competition and have what's on the line during competition. And as we look at that area of research, they simply ask the question, what causes someone to choke in competition? And what that means is they perform at a level below what otherwise is available to them. right? So. Choking assumes the fact that you have a given level of performance. You're just not meeting it when it matters, right? And obviously there's extreme levels of it. There's a little bit of choking. I had a down day to big choking examples, which I talk about in the book. But as we come over the evidence, something becomes very clear that when people choke, their intentions, their focus is on the wrong things. Now, some research would say, oh, possibly it's it's maybe fear-based. What if I don't succeed? What will people think of me? So on and so forth. And other people believe it's more movement-based. No, it's because they're actually thinking about their body and trying to control their body in an attempt to control the outcome. And that makes a whole heck of a lot of sense. If I'm up at bat and I've got to put a scoring run in, I want to do everything I can to control the outcome. And we could apply similar logic to many other examples. And so there's many research looking at this, but the the guy named Dr. Rob Gray out of Arizona State University has the Perception and Action podcast. He's done some of the most interesting work on this and other labs reinforce this. And he works with elite baseball players. And so what he has found time and time again is that when people are put under pressure they tend to revert to controlling and thinking about their body more. So thinking about arm position, thinking about leg position, thinking about bat position from a swing perspective. And what we know is the more we start to think and micromanage the body, the more we constrain or limit the automaticity that has been earned in these expert individuals. And so almost national geographic style out in the wild They have observed that when when people choke in competition, it's because of a self-invoked, drum roll, internal cue, a self-invoked internal focus. And so the mountain of evidence that now says, hey, focus external or using an analogy to drive performance and learning. And the mountain of evidence says when you go internal, especially in an expert individual, you're less likely to perform in an optimal manner Starts to say, wow, we're seeing two stories converge, which is why as we start to look at principles of motor learning, and in this case, the principles of communication that impact motor learning, we're starting to see an actual almost, in my opinion, physiological law emerge. And that is movement is optimized when we focus on the outcome we're trying to achieve or the environment associated with that outcome full stop whether you're a novice or you're an expert where most most coaches fall down is they don't have a large enough language locker to capture the nuance in external cues and analogies to get the detailed changes that the athlete deserves that's why i wrote a book on the topic
1: mic drop boom
2: beat sonic boom
1: that's where the beat drops
4: (laughs) that's it and that's when you have to hit the button at the right time. Text is very difficult to do. <laughs>
3: <laughs> what, what stop on your iPod? Hey, hey! Oh, Burn Band, uh, Nick, awesome show, man! I'm yeah, really, thank you, really enjoying the the book as well, and just the the texture and the layout for note taking and relaxing. It's not like a formal, hard well the Desks thing i'm amazed book. is the amount of like illustrations yes. and graphics
2: in this book like I full like, color like when you said you're like yeah i edited i'm like yeah there's no way like you would have to have did, done this yourself because there's no way somebody would put this much like unbelievable it's really it's actually a very very nice book yeah fantastic man yeah nice visuals
4: uh, we want yeah we want we want it to be as as, as beautiful in, in color and picture as hopefully the writing is so
3: Ooh, i like it what nick when do you start your podcast
4: well, I don't know. I don't know. I'm 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 having a go at what I'm calling coaching conversations. I had one with Alan Cosgrove a few weeks back, and Mark Rooney is joining me tomorrow. So I'm just bringing all my buddies on and seeing how I can uh, perform on, on your side of the mic. It's
1: beautiful. It's, it's, just, it's just communication. That's all you got. It, <laughs> it is.
4: It is. So I might be. We might have to do a podcast on doing podcasts at one point.
1: Ooh, Ooh. and then a podcast on doing podcast for podcasts. On that, Ooh. Yes. That's what, let's just skip the middle one. Go straight to that one get ahead of the curve. Yes. It's beautiful. So I guess, Nick, where are people going to go to pick the book up?
4: So the book is at Amazon, uh, definitely stateside. Amazon is fully updated internationally. It should be updated in the next couple of weeks or next week I should say, but also human kinetics.com. You can get it right from the publisher as well.
1: Awesome. Thanks again, Nick. And thank you. Power athlete nation. For listening to another episode of the Premier Podcast in Strength and Conditioning, Bing. Bing. that was John. But uh,
0: that's it. Okay, bye. Bye. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. You can find Nick Winkleman on Instagram under the handle at Nick Winkleman. And his book is available on Amazon or just head to thelanguageofcoaching.com. Until next time, bye!